Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. It's been 3,177 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 258 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess that President Putin's inner circle is actively targeting Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for dismissal and replacement due to continued military failures in Ukraine. Second, we assess that trust in the Kremlin to provide an accurate assessment of the so-called special military operation continues to erode. Moscow's handling of military losses in Pavlivka has caused a major backlash in the information space. Third, we assess that the Russian Ministry of Defense's use of troops for disorganized ad hoc attacks has created a fresh wave of discontent within the military ranks, Russian state media, and the mill blogger community, weakening President Putin's political power. Fourth, we maintain that the Russian Navy's presence in the Black Sea has become irrelevant with missile carriers reluctant to patrol beyond the immediate coast of Sevastopol. Fifth, we maintain that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine, and maintain our concern that a large wave is about to begin. Sixth, we assess that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat ineffective, and is really only capable of mounting effective defensive operations. Seventh, we assess that the mobilization of 300,000 troops has not significantly improved Russian combat strength and exposed the training, logistical, and supply problems within the Russian Federation. Eighth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Ninth, we maintain that the so-called evacuations in Kherson are part of an organized genocide against the Ukrainian people. Tenth, we maintain that Russian forces will retreat from the west bank of the Dnipro over the next three to seven weeks. Eleventh, we assess that Rasputitsa is coming to an end, and forecast models indicate that significant snow is coming to regions of Ukraine within the next seven to ten days. Twelfth, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat for an invasion of western Ukraine, but we now assess the possibility has pushed further out to the next 60 to 90 days. 
Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. There were no credible reports of fighting in Kherson, and credible mill bloggers ignored the claims by the Russian Ministry of Defense, which didn't make any sense based on the known line of conflict. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine did not provide information on which settlements were shelled or attacked by Russian forces. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that the Ukrainian Air Force carried out eight airstrikes and ground forces executed 180 fire missions. Ukrainian aviation carried out extensive suppress-and-destroy enemy air defense activity, targeting four Russian air defense locations. Russian ammunition depots in the Bereslav and Bashtanka rayons were destroyed. Kherson is reportedly nearly abandoned, and pictures have emerged showing Russian troops have completely abandoned multiple checkpoints. There continue to be reports of widespread lootings, forced deportations, and disappearances. Power, water, internet, and cellular service remain cut off or sporadic throughout many parts of Kherson. Russian troops have reportedly ditched their uniforms and are wearing civilian clothes. There are also reports that Russian troops have been ordered to destroy ammunition supplies and military equipment in place, which adds another indication that Russian troops will ultimately withdraw from Kherson and apply a scorched-earth approach. It was reported that the last civilian ferry had left Kherson, and residents who want to evacuate will be required to do so independently. Some quick assessment here. This is at least the third report in the last three weeks that the Dnipro crossing at Kherson has been closed to civilians. With multiple boats destroyed, and Russian forces allegedly having orders to shoot any civil watercraft attempting to cross the Dnipro, we're skeptical the report is accurate. Rockets fired by HIMARS continue to strike the Russian temporary crossing at Novokhovka and troop concentrations on both riverbanks. Social media users and Russian mill bloggers reported that on the east bank of the Dnipro, Russian troop concentrations in Olishki were also attacked. OCS reported that a Russian fuel depot in Holopristan was destroyed. Also in Holopristan, the construction of defensive lines continued, with Russian forces placing prefabricated concrete bunkers on the bank of the Dnipro. The bunkers are currently placed above ground level, and if there is an intention to bury them, Russian troops need to hurry. Snow is forecasted to arrive in parts of Ukraine next week. In the Piatizaton boat basin, satellite images show that Russian forces have consolidated over 20 cargo vessels. It is unknown if the intent is to steal the ships and move them to Crimea, or if they are staged to bring reinforcements or support a retreat. Alexander Baradai, deputy of the Russian state Duma, was almost killed when the convoy he was in drove on a mined road. The vehicle in front of his was blown up, while the vehicle he was driving avoided an anti-tank mine by mere inches. Two documents outlining official Russian talking points for managing the information space if there is a retreat from Kherson were leaked. The first document outlined that Russian state media must insist that Kherson is very important to the Ukrainian government, which is why Russia is sending tens of thousands of troops to secure victory. It further explained that Kherson could become a trap for Russian troops with no way to retreat, but not to cover any issues with withdrawing forces. Good vibes only. The official talking point for civilian evacuations is, quote, 
Russian troops seek to preserve the lives of civilians and personnel. The danger of a massive attack on the city by a huge group of nationalists dictated the evacuation of the city's civilians to the left bank of the Dnipro River. End quote. Talking points also include calling the Ukrainian military terrorists and repeating the narrative that Ukraine plans to blow up the Novokhovka Dam. The second document recommended using the 1709 Battle of Poltava as a talking point if Russia does retreat from Kherson. The talking points include explaining that before winning it, Peter the Great first, quote, retreated to Poltava, and the withdrawal provided the turning point in the war. And once again, it was quiet in Mykolaiv. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains unchanged. The Russian MOD made another claim that Ukrainian forces shelled Enerhodar in areas, quote, adjacent to ZNPP without any supporting evidence. There was no update on the status of the kidnapped Enerhoatim employee in Russian custody. Nikopol and Marchanets were attacked by Grad rockets fired by Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or MLRS. Ukrainian officials reported that, quote, dozens of high-rise buildings, two schools, and a hospital were damaged. The GSAFU reported that Russian occupiers had increased filtration efforts in Enerhodar, including searching homes and cell phones. There are reports of people disappearing as part of the filtration. Other than that, there was really only sporadic artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Juliapola to Orekhiv to Stepova. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. The Russian Ministry of Defense denied that the 155th Marine Brigade of the Russian Pacific Fleet had suffered significant losses and claimed that Russian troops had advanced five kilometers in ten days into Pavlivka. The denial was disputed by members of the 155th and derided by multiple Russian mill bloggers and the private military company Wagner Group. We'll talk more about this in the Russian mobilization segment. The Kremlin ordered the 155th back into Pavlivka, and drone video showed it was a catastrophe. Unsupported naval infantry advanced on foot and was obliterated by artillery. Likely due to poor communication, the failed infantry advance was followed by an unsupported advance of main battle tanks on the same road, which meant the same fate. Russian tanks attempting to flank Ukrainian positions in Pavlivka east of Mikilsky were equally unsuccessful in advancing towards Vulidar. Ukrainian and Russian sources reported that fighting continued in Marinka. Russian sources claimed there had been no change in the situation, while videos from Ukraine showed that Russian forces had advanced to the center of the city, about 750 meters east of their furthest advance in late August. Positional fighting between the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, militia and Ukrainian forces continued east of Krasnohorivka and in the southeastern part of Vodyana. The DNR militia claimed they have full control of the international airport in Vesele. This is odd, because most analysts had the airport under the control of the 1st Army Corps back in early September. The video they released yesterday was a compilation of clips we had previously shared from July to September. 
Bad Chechen operational security, or OPSEC, no longer shocks us. But this latest breach is stunning. Colonel General and aspiring dentist Dondon Ramzan Kadyrov shared a video on his channel of the Minister of Internal Affairs for the Chechen Republic, Idris Cherkhigov, meeting DNR militia leaders of the Sparta Battalion at their headquarters. The headquarters are located at the Donetsk Sergei Prokofiev International Airport on Zlitna Street in the parking garage across from the destroyed airport terminal. The entrance is on the northeast corner of the garage. Inside the garage's first floor were significant ammunition stores and the physical headquarters for the battalion and vehicles kept in the garage structure. We didn't even need to send it to our geolocation team because the compilation video showing the capture of the airport in the late summer provided all the details. A new video from Ukrainian sources showed Russian positions in Novoselivka under attack. Ukraine liberated the settlement on September 28th, and the 1st Army Corps of the DNR recaptured it at some point. We've adjusted our map based on the new intelligence. We also moved Novobakhmutivka back to under Russian control. In Donetsk, the railroad administration building was still burning over 18 hours after the attack. The water system in the city is almost completely disabled, making fighting the fire in the old building with a wooden interior very difficult. The People's Militia of the DNR Public Relations Channel reported their forces destroyed a self-propelled howitzer, three M777 mm artillery pieces, a 152mm artillery piece, two tanks, and seven, quote, armored and automotive vehicles. All, all of this, of course, without evidence. Ukrainian forces completed 112 fire missions on the occupied territories. Russian troops started building defensive lines around Mariupol, deploying half-height dragon's teeth produced by two concrete factories in the shattered city. The road northwest to Nikolsky was being reinforced, while defensive positions were under construction in Starikrim. Some assessment here. With the Kerch Bridge severely damaged, the road through Mariupol along the M14 highway has become a critical ground line of communication, called a G-lock, remember, that's a supply line, to supply Russian troops in Zaporizhia and Kherson. The construction of defensive lines this far back from the front provides insight that the bridge over the Kerch Strait may not be ready for December 20th, as previously announced. In northeast Donetsk, the operational tempo increased again, with intense fighting east of Bakhmut in the area of the E-40 highway, and no change in the situation. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces repelled attacks on Ivanhrad, Opitne, Klishivka, and Mayorsk. We adjusted the map slightly, moving the line of conflict 500 meters east in Ivanhrad, and changed the status back to contested. Russian sources claimed that PMC Wagner had advanced into Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, but did not provide video or picture evidence. We adjusted the map to move the line of conflict to the T-1302 highway. Moving on to Luhansk, Russian forces repeated their attacks on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, without success. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, claimed they recaptured the town, but LNR leadership has repeatedly made false claims of battlefield successes. Some assessment here. The LNR 2nd Army Corps is combat-destroyed, 
and hasn't achieved any notable battlefield success since late June. Morale is very low among the troops, and support for further conscription is waning. LNR leadership has made several false claims of success since September in an attempt to bolster support for the ongoing war and spur volunteers. The Ukrainian 140th Marine Battalion destroyed a Russian fuel depot in Dibrova. We had previously coded Dibrova as under Russian control after last month's report by War Gonzo that the settlement had been recaptured. The depot's location in the southwest corner of the town confirmed it is under Russian control. Based on this new intelligence, we adjusted the gray area further south and west of Dibrova. The GSAFU reported that a Russian ammunition depot in Svatova was destroyed. Otherwise, there was positional fighting and probing for weaknesses by both belligerents along the entire line of conflict. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Kharkiv region. A Russian mill blogger reported positional fighting in Yahidne with no change in the situation. Russian forces still hold about 1.3% of the Kharkiv Oblast, with the area under Ukrainian fire control. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported Krasnopil was attacked with artillery and mortars fired from across the Russian border. The Bilopilska Romada was also shelled by artillery. The Russian artillery shells hit a farm and knocked out power, but there were no injuries. Vyacheslav Chaus, Cherniv Oblast administrative and military governor, requested that residents living in border towns move deeper into the oblast. He reported that there had been 234 strikes along the border in the last week, a threefold increase. He added that the government would aid anyone who wanted to relocate but needed shelter. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, the Black Sea fleet remains largely at port, with no missile-carrying ships out on patrol. In western and central Ukraine, there were reports of the sounds of explosions, quote, near Kremenchuk in the Poltava Oblast, but no other information was available at the time of recording. On the Russian front, Russian sources claimed that Ukraine shelled the border village of Grivoron in the Bilgorod Oblast, destroying electrical infrastructure. There were no reports of injuries. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Alexei Reznikov, the Minister of Defense of Ukraine, announced that NASM's and Aspide air defense systems had arrived. The NASM systems came from the United States, and the Aspide air defense system is from Spain. We had previously reported the commitments both nations made to provide air defense systems to Ukraine. Ukraine announced the nation had nationalized motor siege, Zaporizh Transformator, Kremenchuk Automobile Plant PJSC, Ukranafta PJSC, and Ukratatnafta PJSC. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky explained that during, quote, a meeting of the staff of the Supreme Commander-in-Chief, a decision was made to transform the assets of strategically important enterprises to state ownership. Such steps, which are necessary for our state in times of war, 
are being taken in accordance with the current laws and will help meet the urgent needs of our defense sector. In these difficult times, we must direct all our efforts to liberate our land and people and support the Ukrainian army. End quote. Some assessment here. It is not uncommon for nations that move to a war economy to nationalize businesses and industries. The Russian Federation passed laws enabling the nationalization of companies that repair armored vehicles and are involved in weapons production. During World War II, the United States, the United Kingdom, and other nations nationalized businesses to support war production. In our assessment, we're surprised Ukraine waited this long to nationalize its industry base. On October 23rd, Vyacheslav Boguslayev, the head of Motorsich, was charged with treason for aiding the Russian military. Boguslayev is accused of providing Russia with helicopter engines and other parts while denying those resources to Ukraine. He was also accused of ordering the disassembly of helicopters that Motorsich was working on at the start of the war and telling the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense the aircraft were unavailable. In the 2010s, under Bogoslayev's leadership, Motorsich cut deals with China, Russia, and Belarus to export engines. After the Russian occupation of Crimea in 2014, military hardware exports were banned. Bogoslayev turned to China to expand business relationships and maintain revenue. By 2017, his dealings had caught the attention of the Ukrainian SBU, Chinese regulators, and the United States Department of State monitoring existing sanctions. In the summer of 2017, it was revealed that Bogoslayev had gone beyond creating a business partnership and sold significant motor seat shares to multiple Chinese investors. In 2019, John Bolton, foreign policy advisor to then-United States President Donald Trump, warned the Kyiv government about the risks of, quote, debt diplomacy with China and advised that Ukraine was at risk of losing ownership of Motorsich. In November 2019, there were reports that Trump advisor Eric Prince was negotiating to buy the company from Bogoslayev and China's position. The investigation into Bogoslayev and his business dealings started before Russia's invasion on February 24th and may have begun as early as 2020. Speaking of at risk of losing, let's talk about Russian mobilization. The head of the Russian State Duma Defense Committee, Andrei Kartopolov, announced that partial mobilization was over and no further recruitment would be needed, saying, quote, The president of our country said, and the Ministry of Defense of the Russian Federation, that according to the decree, it was necessary to recruit 300,000. They were recruited, and there are no more questions. End quote. The Russian Ministry of Defense dismissed the open letter from the 155th Naval Infantry Brigade as a fabrication and claimed the unit has only suffered 8% casualties in the last 10 days, with only 1% of the unit killed in action. The MOD claimed that a criminal investigation had been opened to determine who wrote the letter. PMC Wagner Telegram channel Greyzone blasted the Russian MOD claims with the private military company continuing its political war with Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu and the Kremlin. Quoting the MOD's statement, Grayzone added, quote, The first bells about the desire of the military to once again go into a dull refusal sounded this morning from the lips of the governor of Premorye. And now the main blow to the bell has followed. 
there is no change in the approach to information coverage. End quote. That's really just a lot of words to say that the Russian Ministry of Defense continues to lie about the realities of the so-called special military operation. Propagandist Margarita Simonian of Russia Today also called out the Kremlin, saying, quote, Do not consider people as cattle. Everyone loves to draw parallels with the Great Patriotic War, the order not a step back, executions of the guilty. Quick interjection, she means for command and competence. Everyone wants to avoid it. It would seem that there is an obvious way. End quote. Russian mill blogger Rybar also questioned the Kremlin's denial and called for accountability, saying, quote, Until now, there has not been a single criminal case initiated against the commanders, whose actions caused dozens of deaths and the loss of dozens of pieces of military equipment. Moreover, not just losses in battle, but the actual throwing it on the battlefield. End quote. A quick note here. What Rybar means by throwing it on the battlefield is forcing troops and equipment into battle with no plan, objective, or reasonable hope of achieving any military goals. Rybar continued, saying, quote, We are talking about the need to hold senior officers accountable for failed offensives, for the collapse of defense, for the loss of personnel and equipment, for the low level of organization. Without this, reformatting the brains of our leadership is impossible. End quote. In contrast to the pushback, three soldiers of the 155th made a video appealing for people at home to, quote, remain silent on the situation in Ukraine and saying that they were, quote, not destroyed. Mill blogger Alexander Karchenko wasn't having it and called out the Russian MOD policy of making claims without evidence, as our analysts have for months, saying, quote, Ukrainians post very visual content from Pavlivka, but from our side, the Kremlin responds with statements by officials. Unfortunately, we live in the information age. The tricks from the 50s don't work anymore. Any statement must be supported by photo and video evidence. Stop living in the past. You need to work in a new way. End quote. Quick sidebar here. Unfortunately, we live in the information age. Unfortunately? So, like, you'd be okay with deception if you could get away with it? Okay, you know what? Let's talk about this. Quote, any statement must be supported by photo and video evidence. End quote. Exactly this. We weigh each source and give the most weight to video and picture evidence. Absent geolocated and weather-confirmed information, multiple reports from both belligerents describing the same event provide additional evidence. Let me give you an example, okay? We have suspected that Novoselivka in Donetsk had fallen back under Russian control, but neither belligerent had provided pictures or videos, and the LNR and DNR militias have a history of not being reliable sources. We updated our map today when visual proof was provided that Russian troops have reoccupied the settlement. The situation is worse with the Russian Ministry of Defense after repeatedly being caught creating fake combat videos. One of the most egregious examples of creating fake evidence was when Russian troops were caught on video burying sea mines in the Zaporizhia Oblast. Russian troops later blew up the mines and claimed it was an explosion from a destroyed Ukrainian ammo depot. Imagine what would happen if they put that much thought and effort into effective tactics and strategy, or 
I don't know, diplomacy. The Kremlin may have a wider problem, with the governor of the Primorsky Federal District, Oleg Kozhemyako, defending the claims of the surviving members of the 155th. He reported there had been heavy losses, though not to the degree claimed, but agreed with all the other accusations made by the Russian troops. It was reported that PMC Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin can smell the metaphorical blood in the water and is going directly after Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu. Prigozhin met with Anton Vino, the head of the administration of the President of the Russian Federation, to discuss the ongoing military failures in Ukraine. Prigozhin pushed to hold Shoigu responsible, but Kremlin insiders defended him, saying President Putin interferes with military decisions and tactical-level planning. President Putin reported that 50,000 Mobiks are currently fighting in Ukraine, which was essentially unchanged from two weeks ago. In the Arkhangelsk Oblast, a recent Mobik reviewed the equipment the regional governor, Tsubulski Alexander, had donated to his unit as humanitarian aid. It included uninsulated winter boots, two consumer packages of expired sushki, which is kind of like crunchy bread or a cracker, two bags of expired mini bagels, a yoga mat to be used as a bedroll, and a summer-grade sleeping bag. The Mobics were grateful that the donated expired food came in a paper bag because they now had something to, quote, wipe their asses. Near Svatova, Ukrainian forces captured 21 Mobics from the 9th Regiment. The detainees claimed they had been abandoned by their officers, that Russian artillery frequently caused friendly fire incidents, and they had hidden for three days. We're cautious in sharing these kinds of videos, and when we feel lines have been crossed by either belligerent, put these kinds of updates in the war crimes and human rights segment. In this case, however, the 21 Mobics were animated, speaking over each other, and did not appear to be reading from a script or coerced. Mobics ready for deployment were standing in mud while a Russian woman serenaded them before their departure on a bed of straw to keep her from getting muddy. After, the group provided a golf clap for the entertainment and their military commander. It is a really surreal video to watch. We do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. In geopolitical news, Prigozhin was in the news in the United States also, where he also appeared to smell the blood in the water. On Monday, he admitted that he has actively interfered with United States elections and will continue to do so. Prigozhin wrote on VK, the Russian equivalent to Facebook, quote, We have interfered in U.S. elections, we are interfering, and we will continue to interfere, carefully, accurately, surgically, and in our own way, as we know how to do. During our pinpoint operations, we will remove both kidneys and the liver at once, end quote, implying that his efforts would put the United States into shock and ultimately kill the nation from the inside out. Malcontent News reported in 2021 that the same tactics and techniques that threw Ukraine into war were applied to the United States beginning in 2015. Many talking points used by Russian state media are used word for word by political leaders and candidates in the United States. The midterm elections are today, and there is significant concern that vote results could be chaotic, leading to localized, politically motivated violence. 
The United States Department of Justice sent federal election observers to 24 different states. In economic news, the ruble was steady at an exchange rate of 61 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices drifted lower, with WTI crude trading at $90 a barrel and Brent holding at $97. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market dropped to $2.61 per gallon, or $0.69 cents a liter. Dutch TTF gas futures for December 2022 contracts rose, trading at 116 euros per megawatt hour. January 2023 contracts were also up, reaching 123 euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures climbed to $8.64 a bushel for March 2022 contracts. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, Stay safe, everyone. And if you're eligible, go vote. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.